Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together together, come together this morning to worship you through the teaching of your word, to put our focus on the absolute truth of your word that never changes, that we might be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened in our soul by the absolute truth of your word. Father, we pray that as we continue to go into this year, this is an important election year, crucial year. Uh, perhaps internationally with things going on, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation, that you would continue to preserve us, to protect us, to give us security, that despite the threats and the many who would seek to do us harm, that you would give the right information to our president, to our intelligence services, our security forces, to keep us safe. Father, we pray for our missionaries. There are so many that go out throughout the world, not only those supported by this congregation, but many others who are doctrinally sound, teaching the word, some of whom are operating in geographical areas of tremendous sensitivity. We pray that you would watch over them, protect them, uh, provide fruitfulness to their ministry, that the word of God may go forth uh, with power, and that it would... Uh, change the lives of those who hear it and believe it. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for this congregation, this church, as we advance into this next year, as we continue to uh, put your word first as a priority that we might continue to grow, that we might not lose sight of the purpose for which you have called us into a saving relationship with your son to Mature us into the image of Jesus Christ, that we might glorify you in time and in eternity, and that we might be witnesses for you in the angelic conflict. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, see how they apply, strengthen our understanding of your your word. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we come to the key passage in the whole debate over the spiritual gift of tongues. And it's in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. And then next time we will come to the 14th chapter, which provides the regulations 
for the operation of the gift of tongues in the early church. Last few weeks, I have gone over the history of the modern tongues movement, also related it to the history of, of uh, what we know about the operation of the gift in the early church. First uh, hour in this discussion a couple of weeks ago, I went through some of the background on tongues, that the meaning for the word tongues, that we, what we call tongues, translate tongues from the Greek word glossa, means languages, and this was understood to be legitimate human languages, and the spiritual gift of languages was a, a spiritual uh, ability, an enablement given by the Holy Spirit, a miraculous ability to speak and teach the Word of God in a language that the person, the speaker, had not previously learned. He didn't go through the normal uh, learning processes. Just suddenly, instantly, he was uh, uh, speaking the Word. Now, and we then went through a study of the early church, kind of the history of that, and saw that in the early church, early church fathers, there's a clear evidence that the gift is not known. Now, I haven't read all there is to read on the subject. I've read a tremendous amount. I have seen no indication of the continuation of any of the sign gifts, any of the miraculous gifts beyond the first century. Now, you'll find people who make certain claims that way at times, but um, usually that is a poor interpretation of what they read. One always has to be careful when one reads not to try to find something that fits your preconceived notions, but to be objective in understanding the text. And too many people have an agenda when they go into history to try to prove something. And you have two things operating in history that I pointed out that first time. One is the genuine spiritual gift of speaking in languages, and another is something that has gone back, and we have evidence of it, at least back into about the 11th or 12th century B.C., and that is speaking in some sort of ecstatic utterance that's associated with a, a relationship with a God. So you have to be careful when you read history that even in the early church, or church fathers in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century, where there might appear to be some mention of what they thought was the gift of tongues, it was probably nothing more than this pseudo-tongues that was prevalent in many of the mystery religions and uh, fertility cults in the ancient ancient world. Then last time we went through the episodes in Acts. We, look at, we looked at uh, the day of Pentecost, the first occurrence of the spiritual gift of languages. It came the same time the Holy Spirit descended. And then we looked at the Samaritan uh, Pentecost, which in Acts chapter 8, which did not include speaking in languages. Then in Acts chapter 10, we looked at the episode with Cornelius, which did include speaking in languages. And then in Acts 19, when the Old Testament saints, represented by this group of, of disciples of John the Baptist, understood the gospel that Messiah had come, that they, they spoke in tongues, and you had different groups. And what we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians 14 and the purpose of tongues is that in each of these instances, there were Jews present, and the fact that the truth of God's word was being spoken in Gentile languages was a sign of judgment. That's its purpose. It may or may not include evangelism. That wasn't its purpose. It may or may not have included any number of things. But the one thing that it, the, the one purpose for tongues 
as stated in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 21, was that it was a, and 22, is that tongues are a sign of judgment for Israel. And so the presence of Jews indicated that, and once it happened, and when it happened, word of course would spread and to other Jews, and it was to be a sign of impending judgment on the nation Israel because they had rejected the messianic claims of Jesus Christ. They had rejected their Messiah. Well, as we've gone through our study of 1 Corinthians 12 and spiritual gifts, and we've gone through the first part of chapter 13, we come to this section beginning in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 13, this core section, the last two weeks have simply been introduction to this section to give you an understanding of the background of this whole controversial subject of of tongues, the modern Pentecostal movement, its history through the uh, 20th century from its inception on January 1st, 2001, when Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues at at, uh, the Bethel Bible Institute in Topeka, Kansas. From there, it spread down to... To Houston, Texas. How about that? Went to Houston, Texas because uh, Frank Parham, who was the uh, man who ran that Bethel Bible Institute up in Topeka, Kansas, left there. That little institute lasted, it wasn't very large, lasted a couple of years, and he moved down to Houston, Texas in a, in a suburb or what was then a suburb of Houston called the Heights. And he had a little Bible Institute down there. And back in those days, you had Jim Crow laws in the country where Blacks could not sit in a classroom with whites, so there was a one-eyed black man named William Seymour who sat out in the hall, and he listened to the the teaching of of, uh, Frank Parham, and that's where he learned that uh, you had a second work of grace after salvation called uh, the speaking in tongues, called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, signified by speaking in tongues. And he was then, about a year later, called to a church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And that's where the whole tongues movement just exploded. And they had what they called a huge revival, and people were speaking in tongues and jumping pews and falling in the aisles and everything else. And people came from all over the world to see this this miraculous, what they thought was a miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit like Pentecost uh, in Los Angeles. They came from England. They came from... Uh, the Scandinavian countries, they came from all over the U.S., Latin American countries, and they took this Pentecostal theology back with them, and it just spread like wildfire through the 20th century, so that by the end of the 20th century, over 50% of professing Christians worldwide have an affiliation with some sort of Pentecostal or charismatic uh, congregation. So we have to understand that Satan is using this, in my opinion, based on my study of the Word of God, in a way to deceive and distract people from the spiritual life. They put an emphasis on a, on a gift that in, involves nothing on their part. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. The, the basic theology here is that somehow this gift indicates spiritual maturity and spiritual status. But unlike almost all of the other gifts, this one gift doesn't call upon you to invest anything to make any decision. I hate hesitate using the word commitment, but it doesn't involve you using positive volition and committing yourself to anything. Unlike the gift of giving, why isn't spiritual maturity ever said to be evidenced by an outpouring of the gift of giving, where everybody just suddenly going to start giving to the church? Why isn't it uh, the gift of service? 
Why isn't the gift of helps? Why isn't it the gift of, of leadership? Why isn't it the gift of teaching? See, all of those other gifts entail a measure of effort on our commitment on the part of an individual or a measure of sacrifice, giving up time or money, energy to study the word, to help people, to serve people, to give, whatever it is. But tongues is just something that, that happens and it doesn't involve any measure of commitment or involvement or sacrifice from the individual whatsoever. So it, it is a fantastic distraction that Satan has developed to deceive people from the spiritual life and spiritual growth. So let's get into this passage because this is the key passage. Without this passage, as some people have noted, without this passage, there really isn't a clear statement in Scripture anywhere to indicate that these gifts stop. In fact, what you end up with today, and then I pointed this out in, my, in the first class we covered on this two weeks ago, what has happened in current scholarship is that the interpretation I'm going to give you this morning has been ridiculed by scholars, treated as, as uh, incompetent by other scholars, and debunked. And it is not. It is a valid interpretation, and I have been pleased to see that in recent years, in the last four or five years, a few scholars have been a little more vocal in uh, their support of this position. Now, just because scholars don't go along with it doesn't mean they're they're uh, right, and I will show you the evidence of that as we go through the exegesis of this particular passage. But as I pointed out a few weeks ago, a recent book that came out on the on the uh, sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, is one of these books that where you have four different positions in the book, each one being responded to the other th- by the other three authors. And it's a great book for a theological student, or seminary student, Bible college student to understand the issues in any in any topic. But in this particular book, the man who writes uh, takes the position that tongues has ceased does so without even mentioning this passage, and that's pointed out by some of his critics. And they recognize that if you don't have this passage then you can't show that tongues has ceased, that any of the spiritual gifts have ceased. And that is, in my opinion, the only reason you can reject this is because of sloppy, sloppy exegesis. So let's look at the passage. There's actually four important observations we need to make as we go through uh, this passage. Four observations or interpretive keys for 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 13. The first is to observe that there is a shift in both verbs and voice in verse 8. This is crucial to understand. Verse 8 reads, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. And whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now that is the the King James, the New King James. And then we read in verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, what, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Now, I want you to notice something here. I'm going to change programs this morning. Okay, we're going to try something a little different here. If you look on the overhead, I have the text for the New American Standard. 
Here we have a verb, will be done away in verse 8. Prophecy will be done away. And then knowledge will be done away. See, unlike the New King James Version, at least the translators of the New American Standard try to consistently interpret the same Greek word the same way. See, you have done away here, you have done away here. In the Greek, that's katargeo. But you have a different verb here for tongues. And that's clear in the English of the New American Standard. Prophecy and knowledge are both abolished, katargeo. They're both done away with. They're both superseded. But tongue simply ceases. So there's a verb change. The second thing there. The second thing that we have to note in this section, is the meaning of the word perfect in verse 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away with. So we have to understand the meaning of the perfect, which is the Greek word telios. Third, we have to understand that there is a temporal shift from now to then in verses 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So what is this now and then referring to? Is the now referring to now in the, now in this life and the then in the next life? which is what some people think because they think the face-to-face here refers to face-to-face with the Lord, or is the now talking about now in this pre-canon period of the church age when Paul's writing, and the then refers to then when the canon is complete. So we have to look at that. And then fourth, the point of the two illustrations in verses 11 and 12. 11 reads, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And there's that word again. Put away childish things is the same word, katargeo, that you have back in verse 8. So that ties things together. That's one illustration. The second illustration is the mirror illustration of verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So verse 11 is one illustration. Verse 12 is a second illustration. We have to understand that. So that's our structure this morning. First of all, to understand the significance of the shift in verbs and voice in verse 8. Uh, the shift in verbs from katargeo to pao, and shift in voice. The first two are passive. The, the other, the... the uh, Verb associated with tongues is in the middle voice, so there's a shift there. Secondly, we need to understand the meaning of the perfect in verse 10. Third, we need to understand this temporal shift between now and then in verses 12 and 13. And then fourth, we need to understand the point of the two illustrations in verses 11 and 12. Once you go through this, you can understand the passage. Now, the first point that we want to look at is dealing with the verb and voice shift in verse 8. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will fail. I'm going to change the translation there. It will be abolished. Prophecies, they will be abolished. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will be abolished. Let's have some consistency there in our translation. Now, 
as you look at this passage and you see that prophecy and knowledge are said to be abolished, which is the future passive indicative of katargeo. Katargeo means to abolish, to put an end to, to invalidate, to wipe out, to set aside, to supersede. When you look at that, what you see is that prophecy and knowledge both have the same action occur. Katargeo. K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O. Katargeo. And it is a future tense, passive voice, indicative mood. Now, the future tense tells us that this is yet future to the time that Paul is writing. It hasn't happened yet. The passive voice means that the subject receives the action of the verb. And the indicative mood is the mood of of reality from the viewpoint of the speaker. So what Paul is saying is that at some time in the future, something will happen, and these gifts, knowledge and prophecy, will be superseded. They will receive the action of some event that supersedes them. Now, Along with this, there is a, along with this, there is a voice change. Now, what happens here is that you have people come along today. For example, I have a quote here from a uh, man who is a highly respected, world-class Greek scholar, who is a professor of Greek at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And what he is going to say in this quote is that this change here from katargeo to pao, the shift from a future passive indicative to a a future middle indicative is simply simply stylistic. And you'll find a lot of people do that in different places of the text when they hit something controversial. Well, they just changed, the author just changed from that word to this word because of style. He didn't want to, uh, essentially their argument is he didn't want to keep using the same word over and over again. So for stylistic reasons, he's just shifting back and forth between synonyms. And Good writers will do that. They won't use the same word over and over again. But let's face it, folks. Paul uses the verb katargeo four times in two verses. To use it five times isn't being a little more repetitive. If he's being style, if style is the issue, then he is going to use a number of different synonyms. He only changes it once. That's significant. This is what Carson writes. He says, in short, I do not think that very much can be made of the use of pausantai, that's the uh, middle form, the future middle form of the verb, pao. Much can be made of the use of pausantai, that's the word to cease, okay? That's that's where the debate lies. He says, I don't think very much can be made of the use of pausantai in verse 8, any more than one can make much of other stylistic features that regularly escape detailed comment, For example, prophecy and knowledge change their order when Paul moves from verse 8 to verse 9. But I think even that is significant. It forms a chiasm and it emphasizes something. What is going on here is really something that is prevalent in modern scholarship that is inconsistent with a view, a high view, of the inerrancy and infallibility of the text. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 that... Neither jot nor tittle will pass away until everything in the law has been fulfilled. And a jot was a little letter. It's actually a yod in the Hebrew. 
just a little letter that looks about like our apostrophe, and a tittle is just a, a little element on a on a Hebrew letter. For example, the Hebrew letter resh, which is our letter R, looks like that, and the Hebrew letter dalit looks like that. And the only difference is that little tick right there that is uh, makes the difference between an R and a D. Now this is important because you can you can have a word like pun, and if you add a tittle to the P, that looks like run. There's a lot of difference between a pun and a run. And you add another tittle, then run becomes bun. So the least little detail is inspired. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 17, and 18. So when you come along and say, well, there's no significance whatsoever to a shift like this, it's simply the author's style, you better be able to demonstrate conclusively that it's just style and and that there is no uh, significance to it whatsoever. I'm not saying that there's never a shift just because of style, but that's the last option you should choose. So... Carson and others are, in effect, belittling the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. This is more than simply uh, a stylistic change. There is a significance here in the shift from a future passive indicative of katargeo to a uh, future middle indicative of pao. Now, There's four observations we need to make on verse 8. First of all, prophecy and knowledge are both said to be partial. Prophecy and knowledge are both said to be partial. Tongues isn't said to be partial. This is in verse 9. Prophecy, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Both are said to be partial. The second thing that we see here is both prophecy and knowledge are abolished. Verse 8, whether there are prophecies, they will be abolished. Whether there is knowledge, they will be abolished. So prophecy and knowledge are both partial. Prophecy and knowledge are both abolished. And then third, prophecy and knowledge are both abolished by the coming of the perfect in verse 10. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is partial will be what? Abolished. That's that word done away. It's the same word, abolished. Now, what you should do in your Bibles is something like this. Come along and... Take your pen, and first you underline, done away up here. Now, that's coming across, across in yellow now. But prophecy will be done away, and then you link that to the statement that, that, uh, that knowledge will be done away. And just time together, draw a line. Then we have when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And that's the third use of katargeo, in verse 10. So that connects those two gifts to the perfect. The only time tongues is mentioned is it's sandwiched in between the abolition, the supersession of prophecy and knowledge in verse 8. And we're told that these two gifts are partial and prophecy, nothing is said about whether it's partial or not, complete or not. 
But the idea of partial really has the idea of something that is incomplete. Look at verse 9. For we know in part, this is the Greek phrase, ek merus, ek for the preposition from or out from, and the word uh, meros, m-e-r, here it's in the genitive, merus, and that is an idiom for knowing something in part or in an incomplete way, in a partial way. And we prophesy in part, ek merus. That's the same word. So once again, you can connect, you can circle in your Bibles, in part. We know in part, circle that. We prophesy in part, circle that. And then in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial, ek merus, same phrase. It's not in part. They, if they were, if the translators were consistent, they would translate it in verse 10, but when the, when the perfect comes, uh, that which is in part will be abolished. So you have to, if you, if you're, can understand th- this usage of these same words over and over again and link them together, you realize that Paul is drawing connections here. This isn't stylistic. He wants you to see that there are specific connections between these words because that's the thrust of what he is, what he is saying. Now, Let's go back and tie up another another loose end. When we look at verse verse uh, eight, well, I don't have that up here. When we look at verse eight, we see that the statement that tongues will cease. This is the verb pao. This is the verb pao. Looks like this. P-A-U-O. And pao here is a future middle voice. Future middle indicative. Now the difference between a middle voice and a passive. In a passive, the subject receives the action of the verb. In a middle voice, the subject participates in the action in some way. However, the middle voice really involves a range of meanings. You would use the middle voice, for example, if you were combing your hair, if you the reflexive action, such as I do something to myself, I comb my hair. You'd use the middle voice. We don't have a middle voice in English, so it's a little different. But the middle voice can approach the meaning of a pa- of, of a passive. And I think it does here, and just for the sake of argument, let's, let's assume that it has more the idea of a passive, then what this is saying is that when, that tongues will cease. Or, excuse me, it has more the idea of an active meaning here, not a passive meaning, but more the idea of an active meaning. In fact, there's some scholars who think that Powell really approaches what they call a deponent verb in, um, in Greek, which is a verb that has lost its, uh, its, uh, active voice form, and it uses the 
uh, middle passive form to stand for either passive meaning or active meaning. It could mean either, it could be either one depending on context. So for the sake of argument, we'll just say it approaches that active meaning. It still, it still means the same thing in terms of interpretation that the gift of languages will in the future stop acting. See, some people have tried to put a load on that middle voice and say they will cease of themselves. Well, of themselves, they're going to act upon themselves to cause themselves to cease? Well, not exactly. I mean, you don't have to hang anything on the middle voice in order to uh, substantiate the position that tongues will cease. Just make it a simple statement that sometime in the future, the gift of tongues will cease. We're not told what will cause that. But the implication from the way the passage is structured is that tongues will cease before prophecy and knowledge are abolished. That tongues will cease before prophecy and knowledge are abolished. And that is inferred from the fact that tongues are stated only once. And then he goes on to talk about the cessation or the abolition, the supersession of the two gifts, prophecy and knowledge, that they will be uh, (coughs) superseded. So what we have so far is this. Verse 8, love never fails. That's the main idea. Love never fails. It doesn't fall. And that is the uh, present active indicative of pipto. Love never fails. It never falters. Now, this is going to be tied together because the last verse of this paragraph says, but now, that is now in this church age, continue or abide, continue faith, hope, and love. And I think that it it makes more sense if we say, but now in this church age, faith, hope, love, continue. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love never falters. Love never fails, back in verse 8. So everything else that is said in this paragraph is sandwiched between these two statements. Love never fails, and faith, hope, and love will continue in this church age. But something doesn't continue. Something won't continue, and that has to do with the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge which represent all of the temporary or signed gifts. So Paul says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will be abolished. Whether there are tongues, they will stop. Whether there is knowledge, it will be abolished. For we know in part, or we know partially, And we prophesy partially. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is partial will be done away with. Now, what does he mean when he says we know partially? Let's just translate it as an adverb. We know partially and we prophesy partially. That is because at this stage in the church age, when not having a completed canon of Scripture... No one had a complete understanding of God's revelation. Even somebody who had a the gift of apostleship to the degree the apostle Paul had it did not know everything. There was revelation that was not given to Paul, that was given to John, that was given to the apostle Peter. Paul did not have a lock on truth. No one, no individual, no one human being And the church age has a lock on spiritual truth. 
there are some that have a greater capacity and a greater understanding than others, but no one understands it all, knows it all, or has a complete understanding of, of the Bible. And especially in the early stage of the church age. Remember, the Apostle Paul didn't even have the word Trinity. He didn't have the word rapture. He didn't have the word hypostatic union. These were all developed uh, in the early years after the death of the last apostle to understand concepts that were in the Scripture. So in the church age, you had those who had the gift of knowledge, which had to do with the impartation of revelation for a specific issue in a local church, and it was partial. It The person with the gift of knowledge didn't know it all. The person with the gift of prophecy didn't know everything. They only knew bits and pieces of the puzzle and bits and pieces of what was revealed about the spiritual life. So it wasn't until the canon was complete that you had full understanding of God's plan and purposes in the church age. But during that early stage of the church age, that transitional period from the day of Pentecost to the death of the last apostle and the completion of the canon of Scripture, believers were now in the church age. They needed to understand church age truth. So to make up, to to pick up the slack for believers who didn't have a Bible who didn't have a New Testament, who didn't have access to what you and I have access to. In other, to, in other words, to pick up the slack on that, God had this gift of knowledge and prophecy and wisdom and other revelatory gifts that were present in the church in order to provide that information until a completed canon was uh, available. So... This is what's going on here. For now, for, for we know partially and we prophesy partially, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now we come to that word perfect, which is the Greek word teleos. This is where the debate focuses. What does it mean? What does this word mean? What does uh, teleos mean? Notice it is used in the context to complete something. Now, there are seven different ways in which this word perfect is interpreted. You ought to be aware of this because you'll run across it. But you can boil them all down to two, two categories. The first category has to do with completion, something that completes something that is incomplete. has to do with what is a, really a quality quantity idea. See, if it's complete, you have a greater quantity than if it's incomplete. So uh, lexicographers will refer to this as a quantity, a quantity idea versus a quality idea, or as I put it in this other slide, a completion idea or a perfection idea. A completion idea or a perfection idea. And the completion idea focuses on what we see in the context, that so you have something that's partial. In other words, it's incomplete. So teleos then ought to have this idea of completion and the perfection idea. Now, the word itself, teleos, can mean complete or mature, or it can have the idea of perfect. That is, describing a situation that is flawless, that lacks any blemish, describing an idyllic or utopic state. 
But with one possible exception that's in the Gospels, with one possible exception, teleos never, ever refers to a flawless, utopic, or perfect situation anywhere else in the New Testament. Everywhere you find it in the epistles, it has this idea of completion or maturity. So there's seven interpretations of the perfect. The first two relate to this completion idea, and they're really very similar. One is the idea that this relates to the completed canon. This is the completed canon view. The second is that it's the mature church. Now, my argument is these are just two sides of the same coin, because when you talk to someone who takes the view that this is the mature church, that when the church reaches a level of maturity, then these partial gifts will no longer be evident, and you ask them what makes the church mature, it's that they have complete revelation. It's the completedness of the canon and the end of the apostolic era. Whether you're talking about the completed canon view or the mature church view, you're still putting the same point in time as somewhere around 95 A.D. So these two ideas are very similar to one another. They're just two different sides of the same coin. The other five views are also very similar, and they are that it this occurs at death when you're face-to-face with the Lord. And all of these other views are going to take that face-to-face down in verse 12 as being face-to-face with the Lord. So one view is this is at the time of death when you're face-to-face with the Lord. A second view is that the perfect is at the rapture. See, at each of these times, where are you? You're in heaven. It's a state of perfection. It's a state of flawlessness, state of utopia. The third view is that it's the second coming. Fourth perfective idea is that it's just the eternal state. And then for for theologians who are in love with their own obscure, abstruse vocabulary, they use the word eschaton. That just refers to something in the future. So, but, so all of these ideas under perfection all have to do with some other state. It's not in this life. It's in the next life when we're in heaven face-to-face with the Lord, either at death, the rapture, second coming, eternal state, or eschaton, but it has to do with a qualitative environment now. So it's a shift. Now, the point I am making is that the word teleos can either have this quantity idea or a quality idea. Context determines. Well, what does the context say? The context says we know in part and we prophesy in part. Partial is a quantity idea. So we can't shift from quantity to quality in the same context. We have to be consistent. So obviously, it's either the idea of the completed canon or the mature church that rules the day here in understanding the term perfect. But elsewhere in the New Testament, the word teleos describes the word of God in James 1 uh, verse 25. Hold your place here and let's turn over to James 1.25. James 1.25 we read, But he who looks into the perfect, teleos, the perfect law of liberty and abides in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but an applier of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So it is clear that teleos is used to refer to the Scripture. Not only that, in this same context of James 1, James uses the analogy of a mirror to describe the word, just as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. 
In verse James 1.23 we read, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. So you have a context in James 1, 23 to 25 that is very similar to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13, where you have the Word of God referred to in these, these same uh, analogous categories, that is, of a mirror and that which is complete. Now let's go back and look at this verse again. But when that which is complete, in other words, when when that which completes has come. So let's look at one other idea. What is it complete? In order to understand the nature of this 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 perfect, this this thing that completes, what it, we have to understand what it completes. It's going to be of a similar category. Apples don't complete oranges. It's got to be of a similar category. So we look at what it completes and it completes the partial prophecy and the partial knowledge. Those are revelatory gifts. They have to do with giving content information from God. So whatever it is that completes, it has to be of the same category of revelation. So once again, that suggests that what we have here is the Word of God, the canon of Scripture, not uh, not a completed state of, of maturity in the church or one of the states of perfection. Furthermore, if... If we take one of these other views, death, the rapture, second coming, eternal state, or eschaton, believe me, there are many people who are not Pentecostal, not charismatic, who hold to any of these five. In fact, uh, uh, Dr. Thomas Edgar down at uh, Capitol Seminary, who is one of Dan's uh, uh, Greek professors, a good friend of mine, in his excellent book on, on tongues, he takes this position. I don't agree with him. I think he's wrong. He takes this position. Uh, Dr. Stan Toussaint, one of my favorite professors at Dallas Seminary, I sat right next to him at the pre-trib conference a couple of, last month, takes the rapture position. Dr. Ryrie took the canon position early on in his ministry and in, his, in the Ryrie Study Bible. He takes the second coming position. There are others who take the eternal state, or uh, I think uh, uh, John MacArthur, Dr. MacArthur in California takes the eternal state position, and others take the eschaton position. All of those men believe tongues has ceased. But see, if the perfect here, the coming of the perfect here is something that happens in the future or happens when you leave this life, then what you're saying is that tongues, knowledge, and prophecy will continue until that happens. That completely eviscerates, it guts your position. You don't have a position anymore because what that means is that these things will continue until that event takes place. Knowledge and prophecy, the gifts of knowledge and prophecy will continue until the rapture. They'll continue until the second coming or they'll continue until you die. Well, it'll continue until the church ends. So it, if you take it as, as anything to do with the second coming, eternal state rapture, you've basically destroyed any possibility of demonstrating that tongues is... The only thing you're left with is a historical argument. And that's all they have, is, well, we know from historical evidence that it ceased. But that's because they misunderstand the context here. It must be taken with this completion idea because you're dealing with something that is partial. Now, we come to the next verse which is the first of the two illustrations. How do we understand these two illustrations? 
they are designed by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to illustrate this shift that takes place from incomplete to complete, from going from an incomplete state of knowledge or prophecy to a complete state of knowledge and prophecy. So what we have is the the first uh, illustration. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away, and that's that word katargeo. I put away or I did away with childish things. I abolished childish things. That shows that there is a difference between the child and the adult, that the child is incomplete, the adult is complete. He is he is mature. He has reached uh, that stage of maturity. Now, this is where some will emphasize that this, this shows the, the, the maturity idea in the church. But the maturity idea is present here, but it's linked to the giving of complete revelation, that what brings the church to a mature position is that they have the completed canon of Scripture. And then we come to verse 12. Verse 12 begins, For now we know, uh, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now it's crucial to understand what's happening in the Greek in this particular verse, or you just won't understand it. The way most people think of this is that now I see in a mirror dimly. In other words, now I see life and it's somehow dim. I don't really have all the information. And so we don't understand why God is doing certain things in our life. And and our information is just sketchy at best. But then, when I'm face-to-face with the Lord, we'll understand everything. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. But we have to take it apart detail by detail. First of all, we have... The word for now here is the Greek word arti, A-R-T-I, arti. Now, as we'll see when we get to the next verse in verse uh, uh, 13, that the now in verse 13 is the Greek word nuni. Well, why does Paul make this shift from arti to nuni? Well, in many cases... When Artie and Nuni are used, they refer to something that's happening now. And they can, 99% of the time, they're virtually identical. They're synonyms. But when they're used in the same context, there's a difference. And that is that the, the Artie has the idea of something that is immediate. It's right now. It's today. And the Nuni is a more general now during this general time period. And that makes a big difference in how you understand this. For now, that is right now, Paul is saying, right now, what? In this pre-canon period. Right now, we see in a mirror dimly. Now, let's think about this a minute. First of all, we see in a mirror. Now, remember the old King James used to say that we, we see through a glass darkly? That's how it translated it. Everybody likes that. It's nice and poetic. But... See, the, the old King James, they called a mirror, during the Elizabethan time, they called a mirror a looking glass. 
So it's talking about a mirror. But see, that's confusing because when we look at a glass, if you look out that window, you're going to look at something outside. You're going to look through the glass to something outside. But this is talking about a mirror. And what do you look at when you look, what do you see when you look in a mirror? You're face to face with who? God or yourself? You're face to face with yourself. So if it's talking about a mirror, it's not talking about, it can't be talking about face to face with God. It's talking about being face to face with yourself. So now, that is right now in this pre-canon period, period, we see in a mirror, that is a, a mirror dimly, and the word translated dimly is the Greek word enigma, A-I-N-I-G-M-A, which is where we get our English word enigma, which means something that is puzzling, something that's mysterious, something that is uh, uh, dim or incomplete. So what Paul is saying is now at this time we're looking at this this reflection of ourselves in the canon of Scripture, in the mirror of Scripture, but it's not all there yet. It's partial. So it's like looking at a at a mirror and there's big chunks missing from it. You don't get a you get a you can kind of get an okay picture of who you are, but it's not real clear because the mirror is incomplete. And we see see this terminology used in the Old Testament. In Numbers 12, 6, 7, and 8, God is speaking with Moses. And in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was done about the 2nd century B.C., the, uses this word enigma in verse 8. Now let's get the context starting in verse 6. He said, that is God is speaking, he said to Moses, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, what's he talking about here? Prophecy. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And there's that Greek word in the Septuagint, enigma. So enigma is associated with prophecy with with uh, incomplete prophecy. And, of course, the, you have the phraseology here, mouth-to-mouth, and this image uh, is designed in the Old Testament to convey the clarity, precision, and the completeness of God's revelation to Moses at that time. But the phrase, though it's similar to face-to-face, when you look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, thirteen twelve. It's not the same thing because, as we've seen, the mirror analogy shows you that the face to face isn't face to face with God, but it's face to face with man. So the verse eleven gives us the overall idea of these illustrations, moving from child as incomplete to man as complete. The first part of chapter twelve gives us the illustration as it relates to prophecy. Now we see in a mirror enigmatically. The prophecy is incomplete. But then, when the canon is complete, then I shall know fully epinosis knowledge. This is not talking about when you're in heaven, because when you're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, you are not going to be omniscient. You're still a finite creature. You will never know, we will never know, everything that God knows. God knows everything. 
We never will know that. We're going to be learning throughout all of eternity. So Paul isn't saying here, but then when I'm in heaven, I'm going to have complete knowledge, omniscience. That's, that's not true. He's saying now in this church age, I mean, now in this early part of the, of the church age, in the pre-canon period, my knowledge uh, is partial. Our, our prophecy is partial. But then, when the canon is complete, then I will have face-to-face knowledge of myself because of the perspicacity of Scripture. Then he goes to the second illustration, but now, that is now in the early part of the church age, pre-canon period, I know in part my knowledge is partial. But then, that is when I'm face-to-face with the Lord, I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. In other words, the Scripture is going to tell you who you are, who you really are, uh, blemishes and all. And then we come to our conclusion. Well, let's look at this chart. See, what we have here in the chart, we have the cross. And this blue period here is that brief period before the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, the 50 days between the cross and the day of Pentecost. The green section here is the pre-canon apostolic period, and the purple period here is the post-apostolic period. And Paul is talking about the now in this pre-canon apostolic period versus the then of the post-apostolic period. Now verse 13. But now, that is now generally speaking in this church age, that now what continues is faith, hope, and love. See, he just got through saying that Knowledge and prophecy are going to be abolished. But what continues throughout this church age? Faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now let me show you a problem that you have. If you take the perfection view, the perfection view, then what you're saying is that uh, faith, hope, and love are going to continue, that knowledge and prophecy cease at the time of your coming face-to-face with the Lord. But then you'd have to say that faith, hope, and love continue, right? See, what you've said is that if you take the perfect as being face-to-face with the Lord, whether it's at the rapture, second coming, death, whenever, what you're saying is that knowledge and prophecy and tongues will continue up until the time you're face-to-face with the Lord. That would necessitate that faith, hope, and love would continue beyond that because it's knowledge and prophecy that stop, but faith, hope, and love continue. But you've got a real problem. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that right now we walk by faith and not by sight. For we are of good courage, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body but to be at home with the Lord. See, we're not going to walk by faith once we die. We're going to walk by sight. So faith stops when you die. Faith stops when you're face-to-face with the Lord. So you can't take the perfection view because that would end up meaning that you're trying to say that faith continues after death. Furthermore, you can't even take, and and what about hope? See, in Romans 8.24 we're told, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? In other words, when we're face-to-face with the Lord, there's not going to be any more hope either. So Romans 8.24 says that hope is confined to time. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8 says that faith is confined to time, and that means that faith and hope are both going to cease once we're dead or face-to-face with the Lord at the rapture or second coming or whenever. All of this means that the gift of, of knowledge and prophecy were abolished when the canon came. But what about the gift of tongues? It just ceased. Well, as we will see when we get into the section dealing with the the purpose of the gift of tongues, that it was designed as a sign of judgment to Israel. When they heard doctrine taught in these Gentile languages, that would be a sign that God was going to judge the nation. So the nation was judged in 70 A.D. when the armies of Rome under Titus came in and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem. That was the end of the nation. Tongues wasn't needed for a sign anymore because what it signified had already come. So in 70 A.D., tongues ceased. You had another 20, 25 years when prophecy and knowledge uh, continued because you had an incomplete canon. But once the canon was complete and with the death of the last apostle, the gifts of prophecy and knowledge were abolished. And so there's no basis today for saying that prophecy and tongues uh, continue at all, that these sign gifts continue at all. They were temporary. They were designed only for the foundation period of the church, which is the pre-canon period, from roughly 33 to 95 A.D., with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to uh, come to a greater understanding of these spiritual gifts, the controversies that the, exist today, and realize that that there is no basis in the Bible for saying that these gifts continue or that they're a sign of, of spirituality or a sign of greater openness to, to you or anything else. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to apply them to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.